fire up your best puns because we have one coach to rule them all. Matt Rule, Nebraska Cornhuskers head coach, just as I said I wanted to happen and just as we said likely would happen, has happened. Over the weekend, he gave his megachurch sermon today. So much has happened in the world of Nebraska football that I just regret to mention that we beat Iowa for the first time in seven years, and now that feels like a distant memory. Yo, yeah, that's right. We haven't potted since the Iowa game. Uh, genuinely, it feels like years of Husker content have happened since we last potted. I would also like to, before we like really get rolling here, I would like to uh, suggest a title for this podcast. And if you choose a different title, I won't be offended. But get in, get in Justin's Twitter mentions over it. Um, rules, new rules for rules, new school. Which rules? No. God damn it. It's so good. What if, what if we do new rules spelled like his last name featuring Dua Lipa? Like the, like the song? I like, I, li- I like how you had to specify spelt like his last name. <laughs> well, like, cause just regular new rules doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> but that's already a, a Dua Lipa song will be new rules feet in that rule by Dua Lipa. And, I like, I, and then I like you get it. our podcast in the, in the search bar of people who are actually searching for Dua Lipa. Gotta game the algorithm. Gotta game the algorithm, baby. Well, that that literally works. Like, one of our most listened to episodes was the one that had Joe Rogan in the title, because we had a segment about how Pat Fitzgerald should go on Joe Rogan, and uh, that ended up being (laughs) one of our most successful episodes. Okay, well, we're about to, like, dupe everybody into listening, because we're about Dua Lipa in the title. Yes, so... Gotta game the algorithm. This is what we learned through... Four and four and a half years of journalism school. It's just put somebody else's name in the title and you'll get maybe 30 seconds of a curiosity click. It's the coattails theory of college football podcasting. (laughs) So yeah, Nebraska has a new rule. Mm -hmm. All right. One way to do this is to work through the weekend chronologically. So, just in your post-Thanksgiving Friday, Black Friday morning stupor, did you do any shopping? Uh, no. No, I didn't either. Amazon has killed brick and mortar. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of post- weird as a country to be nostalgic for the time when people fought in department stores at the crack of dawn, but I think that's where we are. We are in even later stage capitalism at this point. <laughs> like... Yeah. Um regardless of of the sorry state of the world. Um you wake up. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? I did. Good, good. It's not what we're here to talk about. I just wanted to check with my dear friend. Mine was good too, thanks for not asking. So you wake up and you start I did you see the Twitter rumors a spiraling as early as Friday morning. Well, we had already potted about said rumors the day prior, so I didn't really feel the need to follow up. But they did, they got hotter. Like, I would say Thanksgiving, kind of a down day, everybody's busy eating turkey, and then I think, like, 
before the game started, we were starting to get like just as we're getting later in the day, we're getting the deal done tweets. Yes, I do remember that. I didn't have much time to check on Friday because I was doing other things, but uh, I do remember uh, ESPN's Chris Lowe, who has come out of nowhere this college football hiring cycle to be the newsbreaker. So that's a hashtag name to watch for all you sickos who follow college football journalism as much as the sport yeah, itself. In between the flight trackers, he might be like actual news. Yeah. Has said that, uh, yeah, rule in Nebraska is basically done. They just need to iron out some twigs and berries. And, uh, Lo and behold, they did the day prior, but there was still a game yet on the schedule. So everyone's like, oh, that's nice. This ESPN's saying it now. Oh, I was on and oh my God, we're killing them. Just absolutely pummeling those sorry birds into the place where they belong. Yeah. First half was easily the best football I think we've played all year. Yes. I will add, I did not watch the first half. I listened to it on the radio in the drive. And uh, I missed a a turn I was supposed to take because I was too busy fist pumping for the first Trey Palmer touchdown. So, yeah, but we just got points on the board and we did it quick. And I think that, like, honestly, I don't know how <laughs> over the radio, if someone if someone was sending you telegrams of every down and distance after every play, you would have understood that that first half was a walloping. Um, and this is the point at which I feel compelled as we're going through this game to check the tape. And by the tape, I mean our text messages as, as this game went on. Not all of these are quotable for the pod. I want to say that, but the first thing is (laughs) Justin sending me a gif of Michael Che saying, is this real life? Uh, this is at, at what, 4.45, so two hours into the game. Yes, I, like, I had just got home. The first thing I saw when I got the game on proper television was Iowa fumbling a punt and Nebraska scoring oh. two plays later to make it 24-0 in the early third quarter. Yep, yep. Uh, And then I immediately asked what I think was on the mind of every Nebraskan. Are we still going to find a way to piss this one down our legs? Kirk Ferentz has us right where he wants us. This is how you respond. And several expletives later, yeah, what went wrong? What came off the wheels at the beginning of that second half? What made it look so clearly like we were going to fudge that one up? Well, number one, uh, there were multiple people I texted this Two throughout the throughout the second half, and you may have gotten the impression I was joking given the scenario and the time of the scoreboard, but I was dead serious every single time I said Kirk Ferentz has us right where he wants us, even at twenty four zero. Yep. Nope. I I took that to mean exactly exactly as you said it. Like I I took that at face value because I agree that like. That was about the exact number of points Iowa could put up in a second half against us. I think we all knew that. I think we all knew that, like, if Iowa's offense, because they weren't that far off in the first half. 
there were a couple moments and there were some there were some close stops. There were some times where we just got blown up on a play and they couldn't complete a pass to save their lives or they couldn't get a guy open. I was our secondary played a very nice game. Um, by and large, especially in the first half. I mean, obviously the secondary is where you start to see some problems happen, but I would argue that's because there's simply not enough quarterback pressure going into the later part of the game. Uh, there were not a lot of moments where it seemed like we were going to connect. And I, how many sacks did we finish the day on? I don't, I'm hard pressed to remember a single one. There were times when we had Petrus Padillas flustered, but, uh, I don't remember a full-on get them down. There was maybe one in the first half that the radio guys went nuts for, but I don't remember own two Ising one. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why do they not? Yeah, so across the game, holding them to 7 for 14 on third downs, I think, was really critical. Granted, we got held to 5 for 13. But, oh, no, 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 this is the wrong year. Why did they give me the wrong year? To be fair, this game could have passed for several Nebraska-Iowa games up and until the ending, which was different this time around. Because this just showed uh last year's game just flashed before my eyes. Because it was almost the exact same scenario. Offense gets off to a blazing start. Defense makes all the plays it needs to up to and including forcing an Iowa quarterback change. That, in the second half, makes Iowa look like the more competent team as the early offensive momentum proves unsustainable, and Nebraska makes the inevitable mistakes that alluded it earlier, and Iowa, all happy, gets the win. That's been the story for, what, the last five? Yeah. Give or take a few details. Yes. Those And those details just, like... the. The sort of fact of the matter was, for me, it seemed like, how does one say this? All of the things that felt like they needed to break our way did. Like, we just ended up catching all of the breaks from the, oh, Jesus, don't play a Home Depot ad. But I I do think it's interesting, and these models are, are not like, excellent, I think particularly in a sport like football where everything's so variable, but ESPN's win probability model switches basically, yeah, it becomes obvious for Nebraska when we go up 17, and, like, never really varies from there, and, like, I can't tell you how much that is a computer's view of the game. Like, yes, if you put if you took football and you taught a computer how football should work and you didn't build in something for the model, which it's obvious they didn't, that Nebraska-Iowa is weird, like, you, it, they start out at 80% win probability. They go down to about, like, 45% win probability once you get into, like, Nebraska 17 points up. And then Nebraska just keeps climbing from there. But holy God, that's not how it felt. And that can't be how it felt for those players on the field. On either side of the team. Or on either team. No, because uh sustainability is the big thing. You know, 
the you're not going to finish the game uh twenty four nothing if you go up twenty four nothing in the early third quarter. If you are that dominant of the team, you keep the foot on the gas and you wrap this thing up with thirty forty points, and then maybe only getting one. We finished with twenty four yeah. points, so obviously. The foot was off the gas. The gap was not that huge between the teams, which we didn't expect it to be because it never really is. And Iowa breaks off a big run for a touchdown. And that's the first time the skills start to tip. Because your, your strategy then changes from a 24 nothing. You've got very little to lose. You can keep the foot on the gas, go for the big plays, because the risk-reward at that point is a virtually the same, where very little risk, very high reward. You you have more stuff to play around with. When you get to 24-7, mid through the third quarter, I want to say maybe earlier than mid through the third quarter, I forget the timeline, You you're now, the clock now becomes an issue. It's like, okay, this is now an opponent that can push points on the scale of time. So I think as soon as that touchdown happened, the kill shot, went out of the question, and it just became more of a, okay, let's try to make them have as little time to score the necessary points remaining. And Iowa, to its discredit, did not show the urgency it needed to get back in the game. Granted, this was a classic Kirk Ferentz move, because he has won games making this type of illogical step many a time, like I said, right where he wants us. But he could have made it a two-possession game by going for two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that all year we've been laughing at Iowa fans as they try to figure out sort of what I'm going to call the Ferenc problem. Because as we know, it's a family business now. Um, and I think a big, obviously, cannot say enough no one in sports media can say enough how bad this absolute fail son, Brian Ferentz, has been as offensive coordinator of a Power 5 football team. And at the beginning, I think it was really easy to say, oh, God, he's not ready. Uh He just wasn't ready for this kind of a position. He wasn't ready for this level of pressure. Now I think you have to, as the season progressed, look at this and say, he never showed flashes of being the right guy. A guy who's not ready is going to get it right sometimes. And a broken clock who's not ready and not that good is going to get it twice a day. This guy sucks. And that offense sucks bad. And Iowa defensively did what they needed to do to beat Nebraska. And if you didn't have such a shitty offense, such a profoundly shitty offense, who don't work together, who don't look motivated, who you can't put some urgency in late in the game. Yeah. The defensive side of the ball was not the problem for Iowa. They can't expect to hold even bad Big Ten opponents like us. To be clear, this is a bad football team that beat Iowa. It just happened to be a slightly less bad football team on the day. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, the defense held up their end of the bargain. I know that sounds weird with a 24 points on the board, but 
sans that special teams error, which is a rarity in the Iowa universe, uh, that score is probably maybe 20 at the most, given how the offense looked that second half. And the defense took advantage of the new, more conservative, more cautious style instantly by just not allowing Nebraska to threaten to score again. And then the Iowa offense, again, didn't, as I mentioned, did not respond with that same urgency, but eventually they found one thing that worked. They found the one play they can spam to get them down the field, and that's throw it to the tight end, who Nebraska would yep. just never learn to cover. And that's what got them back to 24-14. And then there was one element of the game that was severely lacking that I think everyone knew was coming from both sides, and that was that Nebraska was yet to turn the ball over. One play later (laughs) Iowa people are signaling it's Iowa ball and was there ever any doubt that it was no but we held on and like I do think that is as I'm sitting here and thinking about it days later uh, you think about this team you think about what these guys like like, did Collective. the field goal come before the touchdown? Because they got the touchdown after the fumble. So the tight end drive must have ended in a field goal. And then the fumble went to a touchdown. Okay. Makes I got sense. the timeline wrong. I, ca- I cannot allow that to stand. I was spreading misinformation. Continue. <laughs> no, I think that's reasonable. Um, but as we, as we kind of zoom out from, like, the specific game, which also, like... We have discussed on the pod before, I don't know how worthwhile it is to dissect Iowa-Nebraska games. They are Calvin Ball. They do not make sense. They are meaningless, vapid excuses for football that we put way too much weight on in this state. I want you to just think about the Mickey Joseph era. And it is now the Mickey Joseph era because it is over. Um... But I want you to think about the totality of that. Not from where he's starting, but from what actually gets accomplished. Close games against, and like relatively, they were different games, but I'm lumping them together in Illinois and Purdue. Right? Were there things we could have done better? Yes. Were there things that better teams would have done better? Absolutely. Right? But we hung in them. We played decent football. We didn't get laughed off the field, even when our Big Ten West rivals were better than they are in a normal year. Uh, and then the win that we got was Indiana. Is that correct? Yeah, I it was. trying. Uh, Indiana at home, then Rutgers on a Friday night the week after. Right. Rutgers played terrible football. Just played bad, bad football. But, you know, did enough to hold on, which could not be said of that team a couple weeks before at the Georgia Southern game. I guess three weeks before. Four if you count the bye week. Anyway, win the Indiana game, win the Rutgers game, Hold in, hold Purdue within six. Played some decent football against Illinois. Lost. Played very well against Minnesota. Lost by a touchdown. 
got blown out by one of the best teams in the nation who just beat, you know, Ohio State by, like, an almost comparable margin of points. Very nearly beat Wisconsin, which, again, one-score games, we've talked about that a lot, but I think you can be proud of a lot of things coming out of that Wisconsin game. You can't be proud about scoring 14 points against Wisconsin. You can, in fact, be proud, I feel fairly strongly, about holding them to only 15. Then you beat Iowa at the end of the year. If you took away the first three games, you'd be reasonably happy with these guys. And if you looked at that, you would almost certainly say four wins over that span has to mean a bowl game, right? I think that, like, it is an injustice. It is It is fair. It is fair in all of the reasonable, like, this is how the world works sense of things, but it is an injustice on, like, a spiritual level that these guys don't get to go to a bowl game. That Trey Palmer doesn't get to play in a bowl game before he goes to the NFL. That this coaching staff, which cobbled together as much as it could, doesn't get to go to a bowl game. And I'm going to say something spicy. I don't know how spicy it is. Scott Frost is the reason this team didn't make a bowl game. Oh, obviously. Better coaching against Northwestern, better coaching against Georgia Southern, and a little bit more work in the offseason to make this team just a little bit better. It's that last couple percent, and we've always felt short on that in the Scott Frost era. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's probably a little bit more controversial. I don't think Mickey had that that extra 2-3% that it took to win those games. I think that if he did, you would have seen us knock off Wisconsin. And honestly, with the way things are looking with bowl invites right now, with UNLV probably about to turn one down, a five and seven team would at least be in conversation for whether or not these guys would get to go to a bowl. Now, to be fair, I don't know how important it is to these players to go to a bowl. I haven't talked to these players, but, but the understanding would be, especially based on some of the rhetoric after that Iowa game, damn, these guys really would have liked to play. And this is a four win season. But in a lot of ways, it feels better. And it feels like it sets up for better in the future than other four-win seasons. Oh, oh, this is, I think, the best end to a season Nebraska has had in a long time. You can maybe say the 4-2 and two finish to 2018 is in s- similar vibes territory. You can maybe say that... Mike Riley's nine-win claw together showed a program that had some signs of a competency and relevance. You can maybe say that Bo Pelini's last hurrah overtime win over Iowa before he was fired that Sunday was a a fun thing to watch and to feel good about as a Husker fan. But all of those came with the immediate future of... uh a, a severe dip from that feeling. This Husker weekend, this season we played with house money, we cashed in on Friday. Because despite our lamentations over the Iowa game, we won. We we shoved that game into Iowa's lap. We were in their world. We gave it to them. 
and they gave it back and we escaped from that bubble with the abomination that is the Heroes Trophy. Oh, it's a gross trophy. I despise it. We've we've gone on about how terrible Nebraska's officially sanctioned rivalry trophies are before, but I don't think we've just hammered in just the worthlessness of the Heroes Trophy. The Freedom Trophy of with Wisconsin, that should be corn chowder, something along those lines. The Bits of Broken Chair Trophy with Minnesota needs Perfect. to be officially universally no, no. sanctioned. But, yeah, I think the Heroes game... You could write a book, you could write a book about this Nebraska-Iowa rivalry at this point, but it would not really be a rivalry book. In my mind, it would much more be the, cause you know, there are some great books about like the game of the century and what Oklahoma State, or what Oklahoma-Nebraska means. There are some incredible books about like Notre Dame-USC and, um, Ohio State-Michigan. Michigan and, and those rivalries, but you could write a book alone about how these are two teams who have both been in a really weird spot in their development, who for the first few years of this rivalry, we felt pretty good about it. And we felt like we were kind of outside the weight class of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Absolutely. I felt like I remember the feeling of being told to hate Iowa and wanting to resist it because it's like, Oh, you can't just trade a black and gold rival for a black and gold rival and make that meaningful. Um, but were I to write this book, the quotation on the inner page after the copyright and all that stuff would be never argue with idiots. They drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. I feel like that is the story of the Iowa Nebraska rivalry trying to throw ourselves into the machine of the Big Ten ground us down to the point where we couldn't beat Iowa for a really long time. And I would say that seven years. Is that what it is, seven? We were freshmen in high school. Oh, Jesus Christ almighty. No. You're kidding me. The last time we beat Iowa, we were freshmen in high school. The last coach to beat Iowa was Bo Pelini, and we fired him because of it. Yeah, yeah, this book writes itself, right? Like, this is, you can frame the entire fall of Nebraska football in its relationship to Iowa. And I think that we should, because here's the other thing. Beating Iowa teams is going to be the clearest pathway to relevancy in the bigger picture of the NCAA for Nebraska moving forward. Um, I don't, I don't see any way around it. The next step would be beating the Wisconsin's of the world right now, honestly, for the next few years, depending on what happens with Brian Ferentz in this off season, I was, because everyone, everyone in the big 10 West sucks right now. Let's be honest. There is not a good team. There is not a good football team in the big 10 West. Blessedly, we are still in this very shitty division for two years before divisions go away. Uh, one more year. Oh, just next year? Yeah, because then the California schools come in, and uh, the p- proper belief is they'll axe divisions with them. Because unless they shove two in the West and send some sh- schmucks or another out East, but 
that's doubtful. I think we're going to see pods. How does the championship game work? Top two records in just the overall conference. So we're getting an OSU-Michigan rematch. That's a hard world to see us ever making a championship game inside of. Yep. But you know what we can do is consistently tell our idiot neighbor who's better. Because, like, throughout these seven years, I hate Iowa. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's what I was building to is I now, now do in fact hate Iowa. Part of that is the sorry excuse for sports fans that they keep sending to Lincoln. I hate these people and I will go on record as to saying, listen, I was a great state. My partner lives there. Respect to the state generally of Iowa. Iowa state fans. I'm not fans, even giving it that. Kindred spirits in Iowa state fans, right? They understand what the hell it's like. Big eight. Gang for life, right? But yeah. like, dude, I hate Iowa fans. I hate Iowa fans because they've never been anywhere and they act like they've always been in the end zone because they beat us. Iowa fans are thrilled we're in the Big Ten and we're bad right now because they get to pat themselves on the back for beating a blue blood. They're on our goddamn coattails all the time. It is still important to Iowa fans to beat us. It should not. And please, Jesus, please, sweet God above, in two, five, or critically eight years, I hope we say it is no longer a big deal to beat Iowa. All of the bona fides to be a better football team are in Lincoln, Nebraska. Iowa, the goddamn Hawkeyes are the first demon we have to excise. And this game truly, I think, makes the whole Mickey Joseph era a win for Nebraska because to go to our lowest point and then already be able to achieve against an admittedly terrible Iowa team, but to go to our lowest point and then be able to beat those sons of bitches, that's meaningful. That's meaningful to a fan base. And that that's meaningful to a program. Yes. I I do agree that to get to the point where Nebraska football feels like it belongs, it has to make Iowa a non-factor in in those plans. However, in this real world we live in, that point is very far away and requires a very uh <laughs> exact uh or cards to be drawn, series of cards to be drawn in a certain order. It'd be very you know, a lot of things need to go right. You can't slip up on anywhere. But if you slip up on steps that process, the Iowa game still means a lot. And I'm not totally against the Iowa game meaning a lot, as I said earlier, because I legitimately hate them. I hate that state because it is pretty much the exact same patch of land as Nebraska biologically. But we're us and they're them, so we're better in every way, obviously. And uh people from Iowa are good, except for Iowa fans. <laughs> So, because I have legitimate hatred for the state because it's us but worse, and for the fans because they're us but worse, I'm cool with that being the big light at the end of the tunnel at the season is that maybe some things didn't go the way we wanted, but we can make this team feel pain. It would be great to do that every year, but if this becomes a 50-50 rivalry under the coach we will mention in our next segment... I don't view that as a failure because I have hated every single one of these last seven years ending with them dancing on our grave. And the fact that the 
Streak Breaker actually ruined something of consequence for them that was not the garbage Heroes Trophy. The fact that Iowa is not going to be the sacrificial lamb of the Big Ten West solely because they couldn't be at the time three-win Nebraska side is amazing. So this was very fun. This was the most joy a Husker team has brought me football-wise in a while. And you've said this Iowa team is bad. It is. But going by records and, you know, teams they've beaten and whatnot, this was a better win than anything Scott Frost had. Oh, easy. Anything under Scott Frost ever. Yeah. Yep, I agree with you. I, I feel very strongly that, yes, this – and I don't think you would have gotten it had Scott stayed. I think I do think Nikki put this team in a good position, which is why – we we will get back to to Mr. Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat in the uh in the second half of this but this feels good to to preempt the second half of this conversation um i want two things from Matt Rule that I would have said I wanted from any coach who could come to Nebraska, that I want him to consistently be doing hopefully three years, definitely five years, and absolutely eight years into a contract. Make bowls and beat Iowa. Not necessarily in that order at first. Yeah. No, you got to start somewhere, and Iowa is – at this point in time, the perfect rival for Nebraska. The games have been close for the vast majority of our bumbling incompetence these past seven years. And <laughs> who knows where it goes from here because the <laughs> I don't see the Big Ten West being this bad forever, and the Big Ten's about to get a whole lot better in two years. And uh Nebraska's not going to be playing the gauntlet of Purdue, Illinois, Northwestern every year. I imagine that when they do the pods, we're going to have to play the West Coast team because we are the only state that can cross one time zone to get in that area. Shout out to the mountain folks in the panhandle. And I imagine we have enough of a rivalry with Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota to keep them around as well. But those are traditionally the the West teams that have given us the most hell. And those two West Coast teams are going to come in and give us hell. Yep. Every Big Ten game is going to be a potential loss from now on. Yep. We're not going to play Rutgers as often. We're not going to play Maryland as often. We're not going to play Illinois as often. And we're not going to play Purdue as often. Or Indiana. Those were the softballs. Those were the teams that were your pathway to bowls. That gets a hell of a lot harder. And I'm going to tell you something else. I genuinely think Matt Rule is the last coach in the Big Ten experiment if this doesn't pan out. I We can get into this in the second half. I would disagree because, as we said, there's no way they kick us out. We make too much money. If they have kept Rutgers around this long, they're going to keep us around. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. At the same time, do we start making them less money? And at the same time, do the fans start clamoring 
super loud to get the hell out. I don't know. I would say no. Uh, but with that being said, I think we can call the Mickey Joseph era a success. I He beat Iowa. First guy and two coaches to do that. Won two games that the old man probably wouldn't have. And uh, showed that had he been the man in charge this season, this team would likely be going bowling. So if a replacement level coach, as I think we can safely call Mickey Joseph, really good way of six wins, we should feel pretty good about bringing somebody who has proven to be a coach above replacement at two different FBS schools. That's right. The thing we said in the intro, we're getting back to it now. Nebraska has officially hired Matt Rule as the 31st head coach in program history. Joining such legends as Dana X Bible and Jumbo Steam. What? I just wanted to share my two favorite old-timey Nebraska head coach names. Because a lot of media has been saying, like, the 31st head coach at Nebraska, like he's the president or something. And it's like, how many Nebraskans can name more than five? Ooh, 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 okay. More than five? That's the over-under you're setting for me? Because I don't know if I can. With okay. the new hire or without? Uh, let's go with without, so it's so it's harder. Okay. And because I gave so, you that one. That's true. Well, I already forgot those other two names. Yeah. So, Solich, Devaney, Polini, Frost, Joseph. Nope, doesn't count. It was just an interim. Osborne, five. Yeah. Name two more. The two you just said. No, that doesn't count. Uh, shoot. Who were the guys in between Devaney and... Were there guys between Devaney and Osborne? There were two you were alive for. I don't think you've said yet. Callahan? Yeah. Riley? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my nice. God. The things I tried to forget. <laughs> yeah. So the verdict's still out there on which guy this guy will be in the camp of. But, uh, yeah, he, he was sworn in today on whatever <laughs> the is accurate. It felt presidential. Dude, that was some of the most extra shit I've seen in my lifetime. And <laughs> for the state of Nebraska, extra means balloons that say welcome and light up letters that say Huskers and a press conference on a football field. With, yeah. With a podium that lit up. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. So and you were gave the press microphones this time? Were you in attendance today or were no. you merely watching online? I was watching online. So but yeah man. Wow. Spectacle Everyone showing out for him. The governor-elect of the state in the second row. Not to say or do anything, just to dutifully be there. To be fair, he is the university regent. But I don't believe all the regents were there. And I believe had the governor-elect been anyone else, they would have also been there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh Because that is the second most important Nebraskan uh, coming to watch the swearing in of the most important Nebraskan 
I have said for a long time that Husker football coach is, in effect, an appointed political office. And I genuinely think, like, okay, you probably couldn't swing a general election, right? A Husker football coach could not swing a general election. But if you could secure the endorsement of the Husker football coach, I genuinely think you could, like, make it, like, like just take literally anyone, literally, like, a teenager, and make them the Republican nominee, and thus likely the governor of Nebraska. Uh. That, that has nothing to do with the electoral politics of anything. I just genuinely think that is how much a head coach's endorsement could do. If Depending they are on- a hit, I would I will agree with that. Considering uh, we elected Tom Osborne to Congress twice, like yes, the, the coach and- has to be well loved, though. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, going to your point about this being the most important Nebraskan, like if there was a vote to like determine who the next head coach should be, or like we do with judges, should we retain head coach as head coach? That would just absolutely annihilate the general election and turnout numbers in this oh, state. Dude. I think, yeah, I and I genuinely think that retention elections are a good idea Um because not that I think that Nebraskans would make good decisions, right? <laughs> but I do genuinely think that retention elections would make fans say, well, at least my voice was heard, you know? <laughs> yeah, we... So, and, then, and then Twitter would be, like, just less of a minefield. Yeah. And I think we should do that, but then just have the athletic department do what they were going to do anyway. So, like, we make the fans think they're being heard, and then just, <laughs> we follow the will of the fans by doing the exact thing we wanted. It is critically like the F1 driver of the day vote in which everyone does vote, but they change the outcomes based on what F1 actually wants. Yeah, I think democracy is a legitimately good, like, possibility for the University of Nebraska Lincoln moving forward. Yes, and I think with Matt Rule, I would be a lot more in favor of this being put in place. Because while there were some people who said some very dumb things about the possibility of him coming here, I'd say he's starting with a very high approval rating, due largely in part to the events of today. And also, we have no real connection besides hope of wanting him to succeed. With Scott Frost, he would have been probably the most fun coach to win with of FBS, considering he was the savior, the prodigal son, had won it here as a player. So there was a vested emotional interest in him succeeding that we don't have with Rule beyond it would be nice to see a good team again, and he seems nice. Mike Riley was nice. We saw how quickly that soured the fan base out on him. So because this is a outsider, I think this could be a very level-headed uh reaction to his results for the first couple years at least depending on where things go whereas frost would have been likely retained until you know (laughs) the georgia southern game and then at the end of this year mickey would likely be retained and we wouldn't get rule so (laughs) that's not a good idea for everything but for matt rule i would support that largely in part because he gave the gettysburg address of nebraska football today Oh my god, it was like 
transformational to me for what I expect for a new, like, there are very few introductory press conferences I remember in all of sports. I remember Heim Bloom being introduced as um, working in the Red Sox front office as, what the hell is he these days, like, president of baseball operations or whatever. Uh, I remember Alex Cora being, like, introduced and then reintroduced. I remember Jurgen Klopp being introduced at Liverpool. And I remember thinking, because he had this impeccably good line that he started bandying around very early. And I don't know if it was his first press conference, but it's like, it inspired chance. It is on one of the, like, commemorative, like, match day programs I have from the year we ended up winning, like, four years later. Uh, but he said he was going to turn people from doubters to believers, which is not that rhetorically excellent, and yet was enough to, like, turn all of the Premier League on its head because of how good a speaker Klopp was. The guy, English is, like, the guy's fifth language, and he still shocked people. That's how bad at speaking most people in all of international sport are, right? Like, sports is just low on talkers. Uh, Matt Rule's a goddamn talker. Yeah. And I say that not in the, in the sort of derogatory Midwestern, like, ah, the guy's a talker. No, I mean the guy can talk. Like, that, that is a skit. He has the gift of gab, man. And I, 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 I genuinely think it is being underplayed by the media how much of an asset that is as a Husker coach. Because it is so, it's going to be so much easier to trot Matt Rule out after a loss than it was Scott Frost, and I'll even say that it was Mickey Joseph. That buys so much political capital and time for this university to not have to worry about it. Uh, Trev's had some comments today where he said, like, yeah, part of it is self-preservation. We hired a guy who we know is going to be a safety hire. And, like, he didn't say it in so many words, but he was pretty clear that it was, like, we like this guy because it's a steady hand at the plow, and we've needed one of those for a long time. That was sort of his answer on the Mickey thing. He did this sort of, like, jujitsu pivot to, yeah, of course we considered Mickey, but let's be real. Matt Rule is a dude, and he's going to be a dude. And, like, I, dude, I felt like I might be in church. Yes. And, and not like the the stoic Catholic churches that we grew up in in our days of yore, but in, like, a mega church, Like, that felt like something that, like, oh, not Joel Olstein. That's not the guy I'm thinking of. Not Jimmy Swaggart. That's another televangelist. Who was the old guy? Pat Robertson? No, but he's another good example. Um, He went... He's in an episode of The Crown. I'm going to find this. I'm going to find this. You you can you can I'm so sorry my rant devolved into not being able to remember this man's name. So uh, back to introductory press conferences. Uh I this may shock you, remember even less than you when it comes to this in the sports world. And the two I remember are mostly for the wrong reasons. There is the Scott Frost presser, but only the line to, the answer to the question, how are you going to adjust to the Big Ten? I'm hoping the Big Ten can adjust to us. That was a massive dub at the time that bit him in the face so goddamn quick and often that it became a punchline by the end of it. And I remember the Miami Heat Big Three introductory press conference for being the most extra thing 
like 10 times what Nebraska does. And uh, that also biting them in the face when they only won two championships instead of not four, not five, not six, not seven that LeBron promised and still has yet to deliver to Miami. But uh, this is yet this was the, like you're expecting to cash in. Yeah, you said no, not four, not five, not six, not seven. That's a promise, LeBron. I I will uh, say I was looking for Billy Graham. Oh, Billy Graham, the Southern guy. Yeah, the Southern. There are. All the Southern guy, Justin. But we're he was name dropped in the Tim McGraw song, where the sole purpose of the song was name dropping Southern men. That's true. That's true. That's true. So therefore, he out Southerns every other televangelist. But let me let me give you some poll quotes that uh, I'm just picking a random article. Uh, it happens to be KTV Seven. Um, these are the quotes they pulled. This is a place that's committed to greatness. Wants a tough and hardworking team. Trev Albert said he was always candidate 1A. And I believe him. That's because he listens to the podcast and heard me call him candidate 1A in our Scott Frost was fired episode. It's very clear that he listens to the podcast at this point. I think it's very clear because Trev made the hire. Like, literally, after right after we dropped the pod, he's like, we got to go get this done. Mm-hmm. I think it's very clear we have the ear of the athletic director. If anyone doubted us before. But here are some other poll quotes uh, that were great. It's my intent to make Nebraskans proud, but most importantly, for every player, walk on our scholarship. For every player, look back some way and say, for my professional and personal life, it was all better for being a Nebraska Cornhusker. Listen. Scott Frost may have, and maybe someone can just dunk on me if Scott Frost had a great quote about this. Because it's a very standard fare for, like, introductory coach press conference BS. But it's almost always, like, I'm interested in the development of young men. And then they leave it at that. What he did there, I think he was like, guys can go on and play in the NFL from Nebraska if they want to. Guys can win the Heisman. We're going to win conferences. We're going to win natties. Those are on my list. He did a really good job tempering that by saying, like, not something I'm looking at right now, but we got to keep it in the back. And he was like, we got to earn the right to say that. And I think that that was a really good, like, point out that we're not there, but say that it's a place we want to be. He did, he gave, like, a treatise on leadership that I felt like I I had, like, gone to a seminar or something. Yeah, this was a mix of a a TED Talk and, like, what I imagine City Light is. Just, like, a young hit pastor getting children riled up about Jesus. Like, It was the Kennedy inaugural of, like, head coach rollouts. Yeah, and we can say quotes from his speech all day long. And, Nick, you have been a, a awarded orator back in high school and in college at debate team. But uh, we could not do it justice. You have to listen to his no. cadence, his speech, no. to, to get the full effect. Because this was like, it was I was hanging on every word. Legitimately, the like, okay. I did a little bit of, like, studying rhetoric in college, mostly due to, like, the debate coach being a rhetoric professor and me wanting to take his classes. What I will say is this, 
rhetoric in sports is normally really bad. Just like the art of public speaking in sports is normally terrible. Uh, there are sterling examples of guys who are really, really, really good talkers or who have a shtick that works. Um, you know, Matt Rule is that sterling example kind of a guy. I think Alex Cora is a good talker. Jurgen Klopp is a reasonably good talker. Um, but like, and then the, the guys where it's like, they've got some shtick that works. Mike Riley's nice guy act, while it did not ingratiate him here, would have worked a lot of other places, I think. And the true shtick guy that I can think of is Mike Leach. I'm gonna be weird. I'm gonna be weird. And that's gonna cover all, all number of sins. Right? And like, but here's the thing, Matt Rule, genuinely, like, I'm, I'm floored. I am slack jawed at how good a performance that was. I, I think something that might be possible is that this guy got some media training in, like, anticipation of being like, oh, I'm probably gonna go on NFL Network for a couple years. And then just like, or at some point was like, that's worth splurging on. Cause that was so good. And no, granted, I, I think he's been at this for a while. Cause a son of a minister and B, you can look up a speech from a leadership conference he spoke at in like 2019 ish. Where I've been seeing that making the rounds on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's clear and it's so perfectly tailored to Nebraskans. Right. But like he clearly thought about like, where do I have to judge this up to make this matter to the community? And it wasn't hokey. It wasn't Runza. It wasn't, I'm going to eat a slice of Valentino's. It wasn't after- Brian Kelly doing a Southern accent. No, it was not Brian Kelly. I think that that's another thing where it's like, okay, we can argue till the cows come home, whether or not Nebraska still has blue blood status, but it wants to think it does. And it certainly wants its coaches to treat it like it does. And when you look at a school like LSU having a rollout as bad as the Brian Kelly rollout, because it was bad, man. It was nasty. And I think it tarnished the beginning of his career at LSU, which has been a damn fine football team this year. I will say, um, like, especially for where it looked like they were headed post-Ogeron era, which is the biggest hangover Bourbon Street has ever seen, and that is saying something. Um, but, like, I I genuinely think that, like, yeah, Matt Rule, and I, I genuinely mean this, Matt Rule bought himself on today alone a couple of close losses next year, and if he can continue to churn out performances behind the podium like this one, Matt Rule can cover ass for a lot of losses to the point where I almost think it ceases to be a strength for him and begins to be a weakness for the program. Because, dude, he – now, granted, I do like to think that, Nebraska, like, a lot of Nebraska fans are a little bit better educated. Into, in, like, okay, I'll put it this way. We are now very used to seeing what bad football looks like. I trust Nebraska fans to know that when they see it. So I think maybe you can't bullshit as far, but God 
God, what a press conference, man. Incredible. He didn't just win the press conference like they talk about. He crushed the press conference. If you, Nebraska should, should lobby to have like literally a conference championship in the Big Ten for press conferences because we will win the next eight years. Like, damn, man. Oh, to be, to be a memorial when they drop the tunnel walk with hints of that speech in between. Right. Oh, God. It's going to be so, that tunnel walk is going to be so good. That, like, a, a coach's first tunnel walk is always incredible, right? We both saw Scott's first, like, hype video, and it was good. It was really, really good. We were so excited. When you've got the kind of, cause, like, here's the other thing. Scott Frost is an animatronic. Let's just say say that for what it is. Tell me some facts about Scott Frost's personality. Uh, he he talks and acts like he's been chewing tobacco all day. He doesn't ever. I don't think he's ever looked up in his life. It's always down and level. Uh, he has a rolodex of phrases he uses a lot. And, uh, he did, did something that I don't see Matt Rule ever doing and, uh, complained about what the program was like when he got here. And Matt Rule, uh, <laughs> as faint as, uh, the praise might be, as hollow as he may not truly believe it, did not throw Scott under the bus today. No. And that was some, like, that is the kind of gracious bullshit that Nebraskans eat up. It's totally just like, like, I bet Matt Rule privately is thinking to himself, damn, I'm at a, you know, a power five, blue blood, probably soon to be power two, because you got to think taking this job, that's how Matt Rule sees sports playing out. Like Mm -hmm. to take the Nebraska job, you kind of have to think that we're headed to a power two system. Yep. And he mentioned he turned down other jobs. So I imagine that could mean, I'm, I'm, I know nothing about this, but I think likely that's probably like Colorado and Arizona State. Yes. I don't think Wisconsin was after him. I don't think Auburn was after him, considering that Wisconsin got at least an on par higher image wise. I think with Luke Fickle, I think of both Fickle and Rule landed at the program that fits their respective coaching styles better. So I don't think any any fan of either program should be uh, looking with jealousy at the other side just yet. And then Auburn just decided to light their pants on fire. So I believe he turned down the Colorado Arizona State jobs again. No proof of this whatsoever. This is just oh, but vibes, vibes, because we're going to a power two likely sometime soon. And, oh, my God, eight years, nine mil a year. Those other schools ain't coming with that. You know, okay, I want to make something clear before I go on this little thought experiment train with you, Justin. I don't feel this way. I don't think this is the case. I am trying to get into Matt Rule's mindset. Okay. You see, a lot of the higher-profile coaching moves in the last few years. Look at a guy like Lincoln Riley. And I think that this is, uh, in fact, all 
I'll take out the other couple of examples I'm thinking of and just zoom in on down to Lincoln Riley. USC is currently ranked, what, sixth? Uh, the new playoff poll hasn't dropped yet, but I imagine they'll be fourth. Fourth. Yeah, after Ohio State, yes. Yes. So, now, USC was in a better situation than where Nebraska is at right now, but not that much better. I'm pausing to see if you want to argue with me here. I will, I will. (laughs) USC's a much, much easier place to recruit to. It's much harder to fail there. They play much less competition that can be in their league. They are the big dog of their conference in a way that Nebraska will likely never be again. Yeah. Yeah. No. For a long time, for a long time, in fact, for most of the time that we were growing up and I was paying attention to football, I felt like Oregon was the big scary Pac-12 school. Well, yeah, that's, that's because, you know, Pete Carroll left and then USC did the for a while before they finally got their big boy money together and ganked Lincoln Riley from a job that nobody ever leaves before the money got too big. But I feel like this might be Matt Rule's mentality. Like, yeah, I'm in a different spot. Yeah, I'm coming back from the NFL. I'm not on top. Neither is this program quite as close. But I think that the, like, USC pathway to success is maybe in the back of, like, his mind in that he wants to turn this program around and he wants to do it fast because he understands, like, now is a critical time for Nebraska to get good. Because once everything re-solidifies, and we, we've talked about this a long time on the podcast, how, like, if Nebraska is ever headed back to being a competitive kind of, like, top 25 football team, the top 25 is about to start to solidify, right? Breaking into – now, granted, the playoff throws a wrench in all of this, right? That expansion – but at the same time, when the sort of like polarity of college football is consolidating under two conferences and those two conferences are clearly starting to stratify, right? You can, you can be a Rutgers and you're never going to play for a national championship, even if you're in the Big Ten the whole time. I would put a lot of money down that Rutgers doesn't play in a national championship as long as I live, no matter what conference they're in. I would put a lot of money down that Vanderbilt does not play in a national championship of football as long as I live. But at a blue blood school with the weight that Nebraska has, with the opportunity before things start to stratify even more, I think he sees that as like sort of like he's got to see something here. And I guess I'm trying to solidify down to what I think he sees. I <laughs> I think he sees uh the high ceiling that a program with this facilities and this amount of buy-in can get, that the stability of being in the Big Ten Conference can get. And I guess, you know, the personal tradition of uh, him growing up revering Nebraska to being their head coach. But I think <laughs> a lot of it's the the amount of money we're paying him, the eight-year deal. 
And the fact that this is safe for Carolina, which is NFL, completely different ball game, the easiest coaching job he's ever walked into at the college level. Yeah. Like this, this could have been a bull team had Mickey Joseph been the head coach the entire year. That's but, why I'm saying there's not that far to go. Because once you're a six-win team, genuinely don't think it's that hard to become a seven-win team. Once you're a seven-win team, don't think it's that much harder to become an eight-win team. And then you get to nine wins. And then you ask yourself, after everything this – because that nine-win to ten-win to eleven-win step is genuinely harder. Although you make the argument that Matt Rule is the coach who had a Power 5 team, has gone from 1-11 – which is a worse record than we have ever had to 11 and one faster than anybody. I think there's a lot of reasons for Matt rule to be positive about this. I think there's a lot of reasons for Nebraska to be positive about this. And I know that 90% of you listening to this podcast know what the hell I'm talking, but I do think there is that vocal minority. And I think that there are some, like I talked to somebody today who I think like has some reasonable doubts about Nebraska football and like I think that there is reason to believe that maybe there was some stuff that you could call foul on about how much Mickey got a shot I'm willing to buy all of that but at the end of the day I think we all have to be cautiously cautiously fairly optimistic yes uh but (laughs) I will say don't expect this train to hit the ground running right away no Uh, his previous stops had, I believe, one win seasons and two win seasons his first year there. Granted, he's coming into the best situation yet. I'd say don't expect all that much headed into it because we're likely coming with a new pool of assistance because hidden in his contract was $7 million to fill out his assistant coaching staff. That's, in terms of the entire college football landscape, a top 10 salary pool for assistant coaches. However, I don't expect the farm when it comes to assistant coaches. I expect people he knows and has worked with before. That's what all the early smoke indicates. That's what I fully expect to happen. The offensive coordinator hire is all but done. It is the South Carolina offensive coordinator whose name I have already forgot. That's an amazing sign. But most South Carolina fans are celebrating this because until the final two weeks of the season – where they won back-to-back against AP top 10 teams and dropped 60 points on Tennessee and 31 on Clemson, that offense was doing nothing. And Gotta feel good about the last two weeks as a Husker fan, though. Yeah. The last say two weeks are good. You gotta say that, who the hell did we have before Whipple? Uh, Matt Lubick. Yeah, Lubick didn't do that, right? Like, yeah... Am I am I a little concerned about the good old boy network? Absolutely. But this is a better good old boy network than we were looking at a few months ago. Oh, yeah. No, if if Matt Lubick can almost make a bowl game with this program, I trust a offensive coordinator who's at an eight-win team with two of those being over top ten teams to not actively tank it that much. But no, there are real- concerns I- about <laughs> – this is what seven, the best seven million can buy you in that regard. No, I, I agree. I think that it is seven million to make sure that we get, and honestly, yeah, we gotta open another Zoom meeting because yeah. we have yet 
<laughs> wow, with the ooh, baby, it's a triple. Uh, but we have yet to like address the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Which again, I said earlier, I think is the biggest question coming out of that press conference today. What is going on with Mickey Joseph? Yeah. Does that man have a job in Nebraska? We know he's got an agent. We know that agent has been working hard. We know the ASU job is open. We know the Colorado. It's not anymore. They hired Oregon's offensive coordinator. Oh, fair enough. The Colorado Colorado's Rose. making progress towards Deion Sanders. Yeah, man. So where does Mickey go? That's another question to get into. I would say group of five. Do you think he wants that? And do you think he'll make more money? And do you think that he feels like he is ready for that? Like, all of those questions and will be more. answered. I assume, meaning I assume. Should I just close this one now and leave some time on the clock? I gave you a great segue, man. And you didn't take it. I did not. No, I, I had I had to get my two cents in. Oh, okay. Well, you've got two minutes to get your two cents in. Dang it, I forgot to get my two cents in about. So yeah, okay, go up in the next damn zoom. <laughs> so wait, wait. There there are two other assistants who are who are coming over. This should take pretty quickly. His defensive backs coach with the Panthers will likely be coming here. Uh he is two other assistants with the Panthers have already signaled they are coming here, but they in what role and what capacity, I don't know. His assistant strength coach with the Panthers is coming here. Will he be the full time strength coach? Maybe, because he's one of the most sculpted men you will ever see. His assistant defensive line coach, Terrence Knighton, was a Super Bowl champion with the Denver Broncos, who was nicknamed Pot Roast. This is his third year coaching, but his nickname is Pot Roast, and he is a defensive lineman. Pot Roast played at the same time that uh, Manning was there, right? Yep. Hell yeah, I like me a Pot Roast. Who doesn't? Me. I don't like the food, but I like the guy. Because I remember, roast. no, I don't. I'm not really a big fan of roast beef. Okay, never mind. We got to keep moving. Yeah, but, Scandal, but we'll keep moving. But he could be the full time defensive line coach. But there is some smoke about Eugene Robinson, who worked with him at Baylor, I believe, and is now the A and M defensive line coach, who won Recruiter of the Year by 24/7 Sports. So he would be the big fish D line hire, but. Or if your fallback option is named Pot Roast, I trust him immensely. So just by vibes, his two other assistants passed the vibe check. And for defensive coordinator, Phil Snow is with him with the Panthers. He's been with him everywhere he's gone. Expect him to stay. And to be clear, maybe these guys didn't figure it out at the NFL level. And I would say that a lot of these guys, clearly being college guys, probably adds up to not figuring it out at the NFL level. But if you look at that resume pre-Panthers, what these guys have accomplished together is pretty impressive. And I think you see a lot of guys excited to prove themselves. We have less than a minute. The Zoom is freaking me out. I don't know why it doesn't go straight to like a 59-second countdown. Oh, my God. I'm going to have a heart attack. Please open the next Zoom. So speaking of assistant coaches, we had one who, frankly, uh, who quite soon after we hired him became – the big man in charge, Mickey Joseph, before ending the season, no longer retaining that role as head coach. And now his status is weird. Do we want him back? Does he want to be back? Does he have a head coaching job elsewhere lined up? Does he want that job? Can we pay him enough to stay? Does 
I don't know. I don't know the answers to these things. I think it's interesting to discuss because there's all these assistant coach uh, questions loom. The only assistant coach Nebraskans really know anything about is Mickey Joseph. Yeah. Boy, do we know a lot about Mickey Joseph, though, at this point. We are more familiar with him than any non-full-time head coach in the nation because he has been our interim head coach. You know, we've done a lot of talking about Mickey Joseph on this podcast because it's a Husker football podcast, and he has been for the last however long the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Uh, asterisks, obviously, right? Like COVID championship style asterisks in which you did the thing under adverse circumstances, uh, which makes things both harder and easier to do, right? And like, I don't know. You know, I think one of the conversations people are going to have is like, Mickey didn't have his players. Mickey didn't have his all of his guys. Mickey didn't have a whole year. Mickey didn't have yeah. But to be fair, even Mickey framed it, and certainly the administration framed it as an audition. We were supposed to use this time, and I say we, but it's not really we. It was the administration who was going to adjudicate whether or not Mickey Joseph was worthy of a head coaching position. It's obvious the decision they made. It like like that is clear. Um but I think it is okay to think that Mickey Joseph did great under the circumstances. In fact, I might be in the camp that thinks Mickey Joseph did well under the circumstances. The question is whether or not he's the best guy moving forward and whether or not his performance even under adverse circumstances makes you think he is the best man for the position. I think there are a lot of coaching carousels where I would say, yeah, Mickey Joseph is the guy. And I think that you have to consider that this is a snapshot in time where a Matt Rule was available, where there were other, like, Luke Fickle was a target, Lance Leipold was a target, early on Matt Campbell was a target. In fact, we just did a whole goddamn podcast episode a week ago. Trev said he had 13 people he talked to. Yeah. Which you gotta wonder if one of those was in fact Urban Meyer. But anyway, um, God, I can't wait for Trev's memoir. Anyway, there's a lot to unpack from this whole thing. And it's, it's like, here's the other thing I want to say. It's reasonable to be emotional about this. We love this team. Coaches, you know, the number one most important person in any college football program is the head coach, if for no other reason reason that they are making decisions about the other people who are in that program right i get it i get being upset i get being emotional i do think that a lot of the people who are upset right now are the people who have been saying for years it's time to get on side and get behind our guys right and i think it's weird if you stop saying that now but at this and i think a lot of people will i think it just takes a little time to like shake out and I think Matt ruled in a lot today to reach an olive branch out to people. And once they, if they watch the press conference or once they read the breakdowns of the press conference, and as time goes on, there's going to be a lot to like. I would expect the spring game to be insane this year, right? I would expect Nebraska to go all out. Also, because they're going to start hawking the stadium edition, and the place where they start doing that is the spring game. Mm-hmm. And they bring recruits to spring game, et cetera, et cetera, all those things, right? But I, I think, like, I don't know. It's clear Mickey didn't do the job he needed to do to impress Trev. 
Yeah. And I do think it's weird. I myself was kind of shocked how quickly I came to this conclusion as well. Was that, uh, <laughs> as soon as Mickey was named interim coach, the popular view of you I myself expressed was that, uh, well, it's good we're giving Mickey a, basically a full season so he has a fair shot at the job. Interim coaches, by nature, almost never get a fair shot at the job and are not looked at as realistic candidates because of, you know, lack of head coaching experience, among other things. That's not to say that that is always the right reason. There was a wide receivers coach who was an interim coach who got the full-time job named Dabo Sweeney, who Mickey was very early on compared to for no other reason than that was the hero's journey someone else has taken, that Mickey could potentially be on the path because he had fulfilled steps one and two. But, like, right. why was that such an instant thought in the minds of Husker fans was that, oh, wow, Mickey's getting a fair shot at the job when that's almost never the case for an interim. It's by nature not fair when you're conducting a search, as Trev said, Trev hired a coaching firm while Mickey was still there. This by, I guess, nature was, yes, it was an audition, but it's like, I think we took it a bit more serious than we should have. Especially yes. when you when you look at Wisconsin, Jim Leonard was the defensive coordinator there for ages. Was Heir apparent. Yeah. The de facto head coach in waiting, according to most people familiar with that program. They fired Paul Christ, put him in as the interim. He won more games than Mickey Joseph in less time and did not get the full-time job because they saw Luke Fickle out there. So while Mickey could very well have done very good with this job, I think you have to have a more secure hire of someone who's been there before. There are reasons why this could be the case with, you know, why some people get shots and some people don't. But the fact of the matter is one man had won 11 games at a Power 5 program. But now the question is, what happens with Mickey here? Because as we have said, he did not do bad as a head coach. Given a few years he would likely have a decent program considering we have said that if he was the head coach all season, this team wins six games. Which is about what we're expecting Rule to do for the ceiling in year one, if even that. So I think it's a realistic ceiling. I think if we make a bowl next year, Rule has exceeded expectations, but not past what expectations could reasonably be. Yeah. But how much does having Mickey on the staff help him towards getting that goal because Mickey's only been there only been with us a year he is responsible for Trey Palmer who we win maybe one game total without this dude players love him he knows how to recruit knows how to use the portal but he's not the only coach you can say that of in the nation but we do have that emotional connection with him and the players do love the guy so is should it be a top priority for Matt Rule to keep Mickey Joseph on his staff? Here's the take I've been hearing. In conjunction with some speculation and also just some cold hard facts that point in directions. Mickey Joseph, after being named an interim head coach, has a very good understanding of his worth. His worth on the market right now, from what it sounds like, just as the property that is Mickey Joseph, 
is a seven-figure salary. Now, it sounds like that's low seven figures and not high seven figures, because once you get past seven figures, it starts to matter whether that's low or high seven figures. But, you know, and I think that that's kind of the sort of money that Mickey Joseph could expect to be chasing at a group of five school or FCS, whatever, whatever, right? Fact number two that I want to throw into the pot is that Mickey Joseph has clearly loved Lincoln and has gone out of his way to come back here over time, but he bleeds Husker red. These are the sort of things that he said for a year. I think winning means more to him here than it does in other places. Another thing is that Mickey Joseph on a coaching scale is still relatively young from my understanding and clearly wants to be coaching for a really long time. Is that, how old is Mickey Joseph? I mean, he was a quarterback in, I want to say like the late 80s, early 90s-ish for Nebraska. He's so 54. That, yeah. 54? Yeah. 54. Okay. That's like seven um, years older than Rule. Yeah. That's not a lot of time. But another fact I want to throw out there. One of Rule's clear anxieties, and I do think it's interesting that a brand new coach was able to smoothly address his anxieties with this position. He's been out of the college game for a really long time. He has recruiting connections, but those are old recruiting connections. And a really long time in college football is not a really long time in real life. But it has been a really long time. Rule left before NIL. NIL feels like it happened 20 years ago. Uh, rule left before the portal heated up. It feels like it's always been there that way now. Um, you know, having Mickey in those positions as a guy who's been doing that the whole time, recruiting with an NIL focused recruiting base. Uh, also, I don't think you can understate how important Trey Palmer was. I don't think you did enough. Trey Palmer has been Nebraska's best wide receiver ever. That's not me saying that. They said that on the Andy Staples show. Like, The Athletic has reporters who think he's the greatest wide receiver at Nebraska of all time. Now, granted, at a running back school, uh, what does that say? But Kenny Bell went here. Jordan Westerkamp went here. Household Nebraska names. Irving Fryer was the number one overall pick in the 19-whatever NFL draft. And I believe he had a decent NFL career, correct? Yeah, like mid, right? For number one pick, he did not live up to the hype. Here's the other thing that I'm going to say. Trey's probably going to the league. Oh, he's already said he is. Yeah. I I don't know why I said probably. Trey's going to the league. He might be going pretty high. I'd say third round. Yeah, which is like pretty damned good. That's good money. Uh, Yep. Yep. And Trey, at a place like LSU, at a place like Alabama, at a place like Ohio State, at a place like Michigan, would be riding the pine. Yeah, he was number six on LSU's depth chart. Exactly. Exactly. He would have coasted out the rest of his collegiate career there, never made a dime in NIL money. Right? Like, I got to be honest – 
I don't know. No one would know Trey Palmer's name other than three people who are super into LSU. He got to be a hero this year, and he's going to the league, right? I don't know how many other stories we're going to see like that. I think Nebraska is a uniquely positioned school, but I do think you see them faster, and I think you see a more immediate impact if Mickey Joseph stays. And to be fair, um, I don't think Mickey Joseph has that much impact. I think he has some impact, but not that much impact on whether or not Rule hits that target of six or if Rule keeps the respectability factor. The biggest thing Rule can't do next year is feel like he's backsliding already. But also he's got an eight-year contract, so he can suck for a really long time. For a million of that seven million dollars. How much better does year two look under Mickey Joseph? How much better does year three look under Mickey Joseph? I don't know. He's tied to LSU, a team that did this to great effect sort of at the beginning of that, you know, NIL transfer, transfer era portal madness. I don't, but a million on an assistant is a lot. And does that affect the morale of other assistants that you've been with longer? It's a tricky situation. I don't know what I would decide as Matt Rule. I, I think Mickey's going to stay. Because, knowing what I know Whoa. about, knowing what I know about Matt Rule, at Baylor, he made it a point to hire Joey McGuire, who was a Texas high school football coach. High school football in Texas is the biggest deal in America as far as high school football is concerned. So we made a TV show about it that was on TV for like five years. Yeah. So to get himself familiar with the air, uh, uh, area and, uh, enact instant credibility, he hired one of their own. And that man is now the head coach at Texas Tech doing a decent job. I think the similar move here would be to retain Mickey. And with seven million, I think you can do it. Cause I, th- yeah. as I said in the last episode, I think he's hiring mostly guys he knows and has worked before. And I don't see him cranking out the checkbook for the, those guys, some of whom are unemployed because of the Panthers canning them as well. Like, so I think Mickey can take up the most of that money. And if he likes here, if he likes being here, then this seems like a slam dunk to get the fan base on your side even more. And, you know, maybe prevent someone like Casey Thompson from transferring. And you don't that have to play. Huge. Yeah. And you don't have to roll the dice with the portal on year one. And as Matt Rule's biggest flaw in the NFL was he didn't have a quarterback. And he said in his press conference today, the team with the better quarterback normally wins the game. If you can keep Casey Thompson upright, that's going to win you some games. Yeah. And something they said on the Andy Staples show that I think was also interesting today. I don't mean to just do their podcast, right? But I have a lot of respect for what they were saying because I think it is an outside perspective, which we are desperately in need of in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, it is a damn shame that Matt Rule can't just jump into the transfer portal for an offensive line. Yeah. 
Because if you could do that, that would be priority number one. That has to be priority number one, as he said so in the press conference, not really about uh, transfer portal, but he said games are one up front. Yep. Last, last. To be uh, fair, he then said games are won by the quarterback 20 seconds later. So it's a little bit of coach speak, right? But yeah. I think he understands winning the line of scrimmage matters. Yes. He basically said everything matters at separate points during his speech, but line of scrimmage was the thing he said the most. I gotta say though, in comparison to kickers, boy, I don't know, they're a different breed. That's refreshing. Like, that, that is a much better mentality to have. Yeah. And just the smoke I've been hearing of the current group of five coach openings, none of the national people who, or local people who cover those teams have suggested Mickey Joseph. I do not think he is a well-known name outside of the Nebraska football program. Yep. And I think he's difficult to shop because the thinking would be like, oh, you got a really good chance here. You didn't do it. Also, here's the other thing. Nebraska, you can make the argument to me that Nebraska needs Mickey Joseph to work. You can make that argument to me. But you can also make the argument to me that Mickey Joseph needs a Power 5 school to do the Mickey Joseph thing. If you're a good recruiter, I don't care how good you are. It's hard to get people to the group of five. Especially when a guy like Matt Rule goes on a stage today and says, why are we having draft picks out of non-Power 5 schools? It's ridiculous. Let's put an end to it. Yeah. And, yeah, I agree. It is infuriating to see guys that good going to the league out of FCS, out of group of five schools. As much fun as we have with the group of five, and I hope they stay competitive, but I genuinely hope that Nebraska is able to tap into that resource mm-hmm. in the portal and in recruiting. Yes, and uh, Matt Rule, if he can start pulling in Power 5 recruits, uh, watch out because here's a stat courtesy of Michael Severe on Twitter. From 2005 to 2015, Temple had seven players drafted in the NFL. From Rule's tenure of 16 to 19, they had 11. Baylor had six players drafted last year for Matt Rule's recruiting class. These those schools are not pulling in four and five stars with regularity. So if he can start doing that here, and we have a guy here who knows how to pull a four and a five star, Mickey Joseph, this could become a pretty decent pro factory for players, especially with the coach who was a horrible failure in the NFL, but nonetheless has the look behind the curtain that other schools don't at the next level. Yeah. No, I mean, I hope Mickey stays. I also don't think we're, like, how much do we lose if Mickey Joseph doesn't stay and we are able to replace him with a $7 million pool? Because if you don't have the Mickey Joseph piece, you need that piece to come from somewhere. And And it's like there are other options. Yeah, and if we get, you know, say, the recruiter of the year from A&M, I mean, they're they're not doing good, but that's not because they don't pull in talent, then that would uh, solve a lot of problems, too. So I think I agree with you there. I would like to see Mickey stay. I think the path to success is a lot clearer if Mickey stays. I don't think it's necessary. No. Nope, we're not screwed if he leaves. 
And I'm going to yeah. be really annoyed when I hear people say, oh, we're screwed because Mickey left. Because I just don't think that's the reality. Maybe we will look back and we will say, wow, we haven't gotten any guys to Nebraska without Mickey Joseph. But I will also say that Mike Riley was getting guys to Nebraska. Cali Braska, never forget. Cali Braska, right? There have been a hundred ways to get dudes here. The problem we've always had is that we can't develop them. Matt Rule seems like a guy who, to his core, is dedicated to that. Yep. All right. Anything else for this little shenanigan of a podcast? No, I I think we've rounded the bases. Uh, I guess I I don't expect uh, anything crazy to come out of the assistant coach hiring, so I don't think we'll do a pod about that. Uh. <laughs> And, like, the rumors are always crazier than what the reality uh, is, because I remember the hot rumor was that Ed Orgeron was going to be Mike Riley's defensive coordinator, and uh <laughs> he chose to win a national championship instead, so. Yep. Yeah. I'm already hearing rumors that Georgia's co-defensive coordinator is going to be RDC. It's like, why would Rule not go with the guy he's been with since Temple? Yeah. Maybe he'll surprise us, in which case we'll pod. Otherwise, I would expect y'all don't hear from us until at some point we'll do a World Cup update, maybe? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. A World Cup date, if you will. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Maybe we do that after the group stages are all, like, completely done? Yeah. Yeah, good shit. Good shit. Or, or if the U.S. is still in the knockout round, we could maybe wait until... If U.S. reaches the knockout round, maybe we wait until they get knocked out. But uh, but then here's here's my thing: if the U.S. reaches the knockout round, I would be down to pod before and after that. Okay, I like that. Sounds good. I, to be fair, I I don't I think Iran can play for a draw tomorrow. Yeah, I don't think we will advance. So sorry to burst anyone's bubble. Uh, but this is not. Yeah, I will say like you gotta kind of be happy with the England draw. Oh, yeah. That was better than I thought was going to happen, especially after they six-pieced Iran. It was a game that, and, like, I guess that's the argument you make, that, like, um, we, com- like, compared to England a lot better than we did against Iran, but also Iran played a better game against Wales than we did against Wales. Yeah, and, and like, playing for a draw, playing defensively is kind of their whole steez, isn't it? Yes. Particularly in, like, international play, that's always easy. So, we'll have to see. Should be, should be a fun day tomorrow, uh, unless it's not and we lose horribly. So, take it easy, man, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Take care.